When Jesus had said these things, he departed and himself from them, though he had done so many signs for them, signs before them. They still did not believe him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. For fear not of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogues. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in the, him who has sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent hold on, sorry. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Thanks, Cynthia, and thanks, band. Uh, like Ellen and, and Peter said, welcome to Highwell the Church. We're glad that you're here. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, yeah, right now we are in a sermon series in the book of John. John was one of Jesus' disciples. He writes about what he saw. He writes about Jesus' life, ministry, signs and wonders, and his death and resurrection. And so, um, yeah, great passage. Ex exciting, confusing, tough passage. When I first read this, uh, a couple weeks ago, when I knew that this was what I was going to be preaching on, I was kind of like, yikes, like, how do we, how do we understand this one? Uh, and then I read a commentary on this one, and the very first thing they say, this, uh, this prophecy that's quoted like six other times in the New Testament is one of the hardest to understand in all the Bible. And so uh, Pastor Chris, who preaches most weeks, he's gone this week, so he gave me this passage, so thanks, boss. But... Um, even though this is a hard passage to understand, to understand what's going on here, what exactly is John saying, and also hard, once we do understand it, to receive it, uh, this is actually a fantastic passage. I'm very excited for us to get to unpack it this morning. All right, we're going to entitle this sermon, uh, The Word Straight from Jesus' Mouth, this great news that he gives in this passage that is weighty at times, he says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So we're going to be looking at John 12, verses 36 and 36 through 50. All right, so today's passage, especially that prophecy that's quoted from Isaiah, it's really hard to 
understand. It's, it's, it's a tough passage, tough to understand exactly who is he talking about, what does he mean, as well as, like I said, just a hard passage to receive. Does God blind people's hearts? Does he uh, keep their hearts um, like stone? What, what, what is going on um, there? And so kind of just to summarize, to help you understand exactly where we're going, or just like if we had to outline what is this passage about, um, this was helpful for me as well, so maybe it will be helpful for you. So this is, this is what our passage is about, if we just had to summarize it, and then we'll kind of jump in and look at each part. So John 12, 36 through 50, what uh, the summary of that is, uh, Jesus does countless signs and wonders and miracles, yet people are not believing. But God has relentless love that will still overcome our self-worship and our dependence. God wouldn't leave us in this state of disbelief. Despite uh, deserving judgment, God sends his son to be the savior of the world, to bring light into the dark world, and his command that he gives to his son was to bring eternal life to those who would believe. So that's what our passage is about. Now we're going to kind of zoom in and look at a number of different parts to better understand how do we got to that summary and what exactly is meant here. So right off the bat, maybe if you don't know anything about the Gospel of John, maybe if you don't know how this ends, uh, for sure for the people at this time, there's kind of a big elephant in the room. And maybe you picked up on this, maybe you didn't think about this, but the big elephant in the room is, is that, is Jesus a failure? It might, might sound kind of weird to say that, uh, especially if you're a Christian, but is, is Jesus a failure? And you're wondering, well, why is Spencer saying that? But for, for the first century context I was reading this for the first time and didn't know the ending, or just the people right here in our story, Jesus is supposed to be this coming king. He's supposed to be the Messiah that's going to usher in the kingdom of God and, and what's going on, right? What's going on? Our passage just said Jesus did many, so many signs and miracles, yet people were not believing in him. Little belief among the crowds, very few followers at this time, a few dozen, maybe a hundred followers. And right before this, if you were here last week, Jesus is predicting his own death. And so just on, on face value alone, we should be wondering, or the, the crowd's wondering, is Jesus a failure here? He's supposed to be a king. He's supposed to be the Christ, yet people aren't following him. Not many, at least. He's doing miraculous signs. It has very few disciples, percentage-wise, for sure. And he's now saying that he's going to die. He's going to be executed. So what type of a savior or messiah or coming king is he? And the first Isaiah passage that uh, was in um, our passage today, in verse 38, look, or sorry, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That is the first verse in Isaiah 53, which if you know anything, that's one of Isaiah's big prophecies about the Messiah, that he would come as a suffering servant. So John's picking up on this too. He's saying, it's essentially like a hyperlink saying, go look at Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, Jesus, or the, the, the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, was described as someone who would be rejected, someone that would be hated, someone that would be despised and, and tortured and executed. And so, at least in the way that the world views kings and rulers and leaders, Jesus seems to be failing. 
So our passage starts off by saying, they saw many signs, so many signs, yet did not believe. And if you haven't been here for any of John, or even just for the past few weeks, Jesus has done countless uh, miracles and signs. We've seen him uh, do all different kinds of things, whether it's feeding tens of thousands of people with just one sack lunch, whether it's healing people of paralysis or disease, or whether even waking up the dead. A man who was dead for four days, Jesus brought him back to life. That's the event that happened right before our passage here today. Yet, many did not believe. And as we read that, you're probably thinking, or, or if you thought about that, you're probably be thinking, why, why aren't people believing? That's, that's the big question at the beginning of our passage. Why aren't people believing? Most of us think, man, if Jesus was here, if he was just here in the flesh, it would be so much easier to believe, right? But now he's in heaven with God the Father, and so it's harder. Or, or even more so, if I saw Jesus calm the waves and rebuke the storm and the wind, man, I would, I would have no problem believing in him. Or if I saw him multiply the loaves and fish, or if I saw him speak to someone and all of a sudden they were healed, well, then I would believe. But that's actually not what John says happens, and the other gospel writers as well. Jesus does sign after sign, supernatural, miraculous things, yet many do not believe. And so we have to ask the question, why? Why, why aren't people believing? Why aren't tens of thousands of people following this guy who has control over nature, who's doing the supernatural? And John answers this question of why by quoting two ancient prophecies by the great Hebrew prophet Isaiah. Both of these prophecies speaking about this future coming Messiah, this future coming king that would rescue and his kingdom would never end. So the first thing John quotes by helping answer the question about why people aren't believing in Jesus, like I said, comes from Isaiah 53, which describes the Messiah king and the type of Messiah he was going to be. So Jesus actually, to answer that big question, an elephant in the room, Jesus is actually not failing. But being rejected, being despised, tortured, and then ultimately executed was all part of the plan. That's actually how Jesus is going to be victorious. So they didn't believe, even with signs and wonders and miracles present, because Jesus was going to be a rejected, despised Christ. A Messiah who would be rejected and disbelieved by others. And that is how he would be our rescuer and savior. But John continues to give us another reason why the crowds saw so many miracles and still didn't believe. Starting in verse 38, he, he, or verse 39, he quotes another famous uh, prophecy from Isaiah. Verse 39 says, Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. So this is the big prophecy, the one that uh, makes us pause, the one that makes us say kind of like, whoa, what, what, what do we do with this? I want to change what it says. I have uh, a hard time reading this and, you know, not just receiving it on face value. And so as we, we're going to wrestle through this passage and see what this prophecy exactly means. But before we do that, there's two things we have to remember, two things we have to start with before we start to unpack 
this prophecy in Isaiah. And as I was looking at commentaries, new and old, throughout church history, they kept hitting on these two things. And the first is that God cannot sin. God in his character, he's holy, he's righteous, he's perfect. Everything he does is good. Nor can God compel people to sin. So whatever he does and doesn't do, it is good. It is holy. It is righteous. So Christians for forever have always believed that. People who believe the Bible have always believed that. So as we wrestle through what this prophecy means, we have to remember that God is good. He cannot sin. He cannot do evil. And second, we need to remember that our default human condition is to stay blinded and to keep our hearts of stone. Both our desires and our nature is one of independence, one of self-worship. And that is who we are at a fundamental level. Apart from Jesus, we don't default to wanting to worship God, but rather we want to worship ourselves, put ourselves at the center of the universe or on the throne of our lives. Apart from Jesus, we don't default to uh, seeing others' needs as more important than our own. We default to independence and self-worship. That's who we are at a fundamental level. And God gives this to us. It's kind of strange to hear. Romans 1, so New Testament book kind of like zooms back and looks at all of the human condition and helps us understand what's going on. In Romans 1, it says that in, in creation, God has designed all humans to know that there's divine, to know that there is a creator. Not necessarily to know all the details, but we're just hardwired to know that there is a God. Yet, in our sin, because of our rebellion against God, we would rather exchange the glory of worshiping our creator with the glory of worshiping creation, including creation that looks just like us and ourselves. We'd rather exchange the glory of the immortal God for the glory of mortal man. Romans 1 says, and it also says in this passage too, which, which is kind of surprising, it says the wrath of God has appeared against humanity. God's judgment against mankind has come. And you might be surprised on what comes after that, right? You might think God's wrath against sinful humanity is, you might think, you know, the ground opening up and swallowing people, fire coming down from earth, some type of judgment language that maybe comes to our mind right away. But Romans 1 says, this is the judgment of God against humanity. He lets us do what we want. He knows that we would rather worship ourselves. He knows that we'd rather uh, have independence, would rather rule and party away from him, destined for destruction, than to submit to him and worship him as God. And God's judgment on his humanity is, he says, okay. So back to our point number two here, our default human condition is not that we don't want to be blind anymore or that we want new hearts, our, our, our nature, apart from Jesus, is not, God, please give me a new heart. Please open these eyes. I want to behold you. But rather, the default human position is one against God and only for ourselves. We see that described in detail in Romans 1. We see it prophesied in Isaiah, and we see it play out in the narrative here in John I remember like deeply wrestling with this doctrine because this is a hard one to receive. I remember thinking in my early 20s that uh, 
the, the doctrine that God saves us and we don't ultimately choose him, accept him, or do anything to be uh, pleasing or, or desirable or to open up our own eyes and, and give ourselves new hearts, that was really hard for me. And I was, I was wrestling especially between these two things. I, I knew that God was good. I knew that he's holy. I knew that he's righteous. I knew that he loves us deeply. And so in my mind, because that existed, he would never say no to someone who wanted their eyes opened. He would never say no to someone who wanted a new heart. If God's loving, he would never say no to the person that's truly, honestly seeking him. But what I was missing, and I, I literally remember the moment, I'm, I was sitting at Chris and Rob's Chicago Taste Authority, and a light bulb went off that that person doesn't exist. The person that says, God, I want to believe, help me to see. But God's like, sorry, I flipped the coin, heads came up, you're on that list. That person does not exist. If someone has a desire to see, a desire to know God, a desire to have a new heart, then that is God uh, giving them that desire. He is the one that's melting their heart of stone and removing the veil from their eyes or the scale, scales from their sight. There's never existed a person in history who's wanted to believe, but God said no. But rather, Number two is our reality. Apart from God interrupting, un unjustly stepping in and saying, no, I'm not going to let you worship yourself only. I'm not going to let you follow independence. I am going to take you off the throne of your life. I am going to give you new eyes and a new heart, whether you ask for it or not. Apart from God doing that, this is our reality. Our default human condition is to rebel against God. And John's told us that through our story as well, through the narrative. If, if, if you haven't been here, let me tell you a little bit what's gone on in the first 11 chapters of John. I alluded to it earlier. But so far in John, Jesus has done supernatural things. He's done signs and wonders that no one else could do except for someone who's been sent by God. Literally tens of thousands of people have seen him do supernatural, miraculous things. Yet at this point in the story, how many people are following him? Maybe 100, maybe 150. So John, in his story, is, is, is sharing, number two here, that's the human condition, right? We think we might be different, but the reality is tens of thousands of people saw Jesus, God in flesh, doing only what the divine could do, and less than 1% actually followed him, actually believed. Remember what our passage starts off today he did so many miracles in front of them it very few believed and that is human nature even though we might see something unbelievable we do not respond to it with what it demands is that we get off the throne of our own lives or that we submit and follow our savior so whatever this prophecy means and to be clear it's hard and Church fathers and mothers all across the globe for 2,000 years have, have debated what exactly this means. Regardless of whatever this prophecy means, these two things we can know. God is good. God is holy. God is righteous. Everything he does is good. And he's giving us rebels exactly what we want. Even though it breaks his heart, even though he knows our rebellion and independence will lead to our death and destruction. 
He allows it. We often think that our default is, is submission. Our default is worship. Our default is faith and trust. But it never is. It's not like these people wanted to see and believe, but God stopped them from doing it. We want the glory. We want the respect of others. We want acceptance by men. We want the comfort. Which leads us to, to the second reason John says that people did not believe. They saw many signs, yet they didn't believe because we are glory thieves. It's not as if each individual person doesn't have responsibility and choice. So even though we have this very big God, sovereign God, providence of God uh, prophecy here, it's not as if humans don't have real choice. Surrounding these very tough words of God, blinding eyes and hardening hearts, is this, at the very same time, descriptions of humans seeing yet not choosing. Right? That's how our passage starts. They saw, yet they chose not to believe. And then later we read that they count the cost and they realize it wasn't worth it. In verse 42 we read, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Even the religious leaders, some of them believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So maybe first thought we think, oh man, these guys are cowards, right? They, they, they see and they even believe. They're actually convinced, some of them, some of these leaders, that man, only, only what Jesus is doing can really come from God. Yet, for fear of getting kicked out, for fear of what other people will say, they choose not to believe. So we start, we might start by thinking, man, these guys are cowards. Yet also, maybe some of us are thinking, or if we think more about this, we actually maybe have some empathy towards these people. Because these, these religious leaders are actually understanding Jesus and his teachings. They actually are counting the cost. They're getting what he's saying. Whether it's last week's passage where, where Jesus says, uh, you must uh, hate your life in order to save it. Or whether it's Jesus' calls to deny themselves, to take up their cross, to follow him. These religious rulers are realizing that uh, believing in Christ will come at great cost. It will come at great cost. They will have to deny their lives. They will have to deny their comforts. They will be kicked out of the synagogue, our passage explicitly says. They will lose their religious identity. They will lose the center of their culture. They'll be ostracized and hated by their friends and their family. And so they're counting the cost. They realize what following Jesus will cost them. So while they are being fearful and cowards, they also are actually understanding what Jesus calls them to. But not just these particular people, but we all value our own glory and acceptance and praise more than the glory we receive from God. That's just our human condition, which is sinful nature, which we've been talking about that is us. We are these people that see and kind of believe but are choosing to give up because we're afraid of what it's going to cost us. We're afraid of losing respect and face in front of others. Yet, there's hope in Jesus. This phrase we've been saying, maybe every single sermon, 
in the Gospel of John is that the news is bad, but the story doesn't stop there. Our situation is horrible, yet there is hope in Jesus. So as we talk about this right here, notice that this uh, does not mean that denying Christ once and you're screwed. Or, or maybe not even once. Maybe like you wrestle with this many times. Maybe you're worried about, uh, about acceptance of others. Maybe you just have lots of doubts. Maybe you're afraid of what it will cost you. And this, uh, this lack of trust in God, this lack of trust in Jesus and his message and his gospel, maybe that will be something you struggle with your entire life. If that's you, know that your acceptance is not based on you believing perfectly. Right? As the story continues, spoiler alert, uh, this, this happens again and again, actually. So we see people so far that have these exact people, right? We have Nicodemus, who showed up in chapter 3, a religious leader that went to Jesus at night because he was afraid what his buddies would say. He was afraid what other religious leaders would say. And so he has this uh, interaction with Jesus. He wants to understand, but he doesn't, and he doesn't follow Jesus. But later on in the story, we believe, or we see he does believe. After Jesus' death and resurrection, Nicodemus does believe. So after rejecting Jesus earlier, after being more afraid about the, the glory of man and what his fellow Pharisees are going to say, he does believe. Or Joseph of Arimathea, if you know him, another Pharisee who uh, was a, a secret disciple of Jesus, who later, after Jesus' death, is the one that buries Jesus' bodies. Or not even just these people. Think about Jesus' disciples, right? Think about Jesus' disciples, who are cowards, who the, the night of his crucifixion fall asleep, and then all the 12 abandon him, right? Except for the women. There's actually a few women that stuck around. But the 12 guys abandon him, right? Or Peter, who a slave girl comes up to him and says, hey, I think you're one of Jesus' followers. And publicly, three times, he denies him. So our passage here today does not mean if you value the glory of man once, or if you have a hard time confessing Christ publicly to your friends and family, to your colleagues, to your neighborhood, if you are afraid at times, if you do deny Christ publicly, it's not as if it's hopeless, but rather we see throughout the story, Jesus has grace and gives faith and life to all different kinds of people, including cowards, including people who care about man's glory more than God's. So why didn't they believe? Back to our big question that we started with. Why didn't they believe? Was it God hardening their hearts and keeping their eyes closed? Or was it them, themselves, making bad choices and caring more about man's glory than God's? John tells us the answer to that question is both. How does that exactly work? I don't know. It's hard to understand. For many of us, really hard to receive. It seems like it can't be both, but it is. It's a tension, a spiritual tension, a theological tension. Two things that seem contradictory, yet the Bible says both are true. Just like our God in his nature. Three persons, yet one God. Or like the tension of Jesus' own nature. Fully God and fully man. Not 50-50, but 100-100. How does that work? We have no idea. How does that logically make sense? It doesn't. And unbelievers call us fools. It looks like foolishness. Yet billions of Christians 
over two millennia all across this globe have said, we can't get around this. This is who Jesus said he was. This is what the Bible, how it describes him. So just like our God being three in one, just like Christ being fully God and fully man, we have these theological tensions where God is behind hardening hearts and, and people not seeing, and at the same time, humans have full responsibility and real choices. And it's actually, as a thing about this week, it's actually a good thing that we don't fully understand God. It's frustrating. We kind of wish we could know exactly how everything works. Yet, if we have to pick between a God who we can completely comprehend and understand everything about, or a God that's just unfathomable and we can't understand his everything, he's too powerful and beautiful and grand for us to understand, this one's a much better God. And so while it can be tough and even frustrating, not fully understanding our God or him breaking our logical or philosophical rules is actually a good thing, a good thing for us. Our unbelief, our sin, and our desire to make ourselves the gods of our own life is our reality. But it doesn't just stop there. Our passage continues, the story continues. God doesn't leave us there. God doesn't leave these guys there that want humans' glory more than God's. God doesn't leave us there, people who see his signs and wonders, yet still doubt and don't believe. God came to fix this problem. He came to overcome it, and he did it at an infinite cost to himself. God doesn't leave us there, and that's how our passage continues. Verse 49, Jesus continues. He says, For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. So God the Father in his sovereignty and providence and love for you and me sends his son into the world and commands him to do something, gives him a command. And that is that Jesus would bring eternal life. Jesus says right here, that is the command that God the Father has given him as Jesus is sent into the world, that Jesus would speak and purchase and bring eternal life to the world, the world that God loves so much. And we realize this as, as, as Jesus says this and make this very clear. This is the type of Savior that he is. This is God's command to Jesus, is that he would be a Savior that would bring eternal life. That helps us understand all the beginning of John. It helps us understand why is Jesus feeding people and giving people water to drink? And why is he healing their bodies? Why, why is he calming natural disasters and storms? Why is he removing disease? Why is he speaking to the dead and making them alive? All of his signs and wonders and miracles are pointing ahead to what Jesus bringing eternal life will look like. Jesus' eternal life that he offers will be re reuniting us with our creator without disease, without hunger, without thirst, without brokenness and bodies that are falling apart, without all of creation being under sin and things like storms and natural disasters being a part of our reality. So all of Jesus' miracles and signs and wonders were pointing ahead to his greatest miracle, salvation through faith, ushering his people into eternal life on a new, resurrected, recreated earth. 
And the reason that Jesus can do this, the reason that it didn't work with Moses or Abraham or even John the Baptist, who we read about at the beginning of our story, the reason that Jesus can do this, that he can be the one person that gets a command from God to bring eternal life, is because Jesus himself is God. The reason that Jesus can win eternal life for billions of people destined for death, the reason he can overcome our, our, our slavery to self-worship and independence is because he is God. Some of you might have caught that in our passage. Some of the really clear, explicit stuff that Jesus is saying. It, it's shocking to the first listeners of this, to, to a Jewish person that knew their Torah really well. This was offensive. It was insulting to the listeners, unless they're true. Jesus says things like this in verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes uh, not in me, but in him who sent me. And later Jesus says, The Father sent him. So whoever believes in me doesn't believe in me, but believes in him who sent me, God the Father. Verse 45. And whoever sees him, oh, sorry, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Whoever sees me, Jesus says, sees God the Father. So why this is insulting and shocking is scandalous is Jesus here is, is teaching that he is of the exact same essence and existence as God Almighty. Jesus here is declaring that faith in him equals faith in Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the Isaac and Jacob. Jesus is announcing to these crowds that he is the visible reality of the invisible God. We've already seen this multiple times in John where, where uh, we, we read that God is invisible and no one can see God. If you remember the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, Moses, one of the greatest figures in all of the Hebrew story, in all of the Old Testament, actually speaks to God and says, God, I, I want to see your glory. I want to see your beauty, your power, your majesty. Can I? And this is God's response to him. He says, uh, God responds to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. From Exodus 33. God is so perfect and holy and too divine and glorious for our sinful mortal bodies to behold. Yet here in John, Jesus is saying the unthinkable. Right? Good Jewish men and women who know God is invisible. We cannot see. We are sinful. He is holy. If people see God, they fall down dead. Not even Moses could see him, yet Jesus here is saying the unthinkable. He's saying, that's me. I am God. You want to see the Father? If you want to see Yahweh, look at me. If you see me, you see the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you can live. You can be in the presence and not fall down dead. You can gaze upon the power of the divine. You can see his beauty and holiness. And for the first time since the very beginning of creation, you can be in relationship with him. The New Testament speaks about Jesus in, in powerful, poetic, and in, in, uh, complete language. We read in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is fully God. Hebrews 1, 3 says something similar. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. 
Jesus is truly and fully divine. He's the second member of the triune God, three persons and one unified God. And he was sent by the Father into the world on a rescue mission because of the Father's great love for you and for me and for the world. So Jesus comes not as a judge, not as someone who is against rebellious humanity, but he says he comes as a savior. We read in verse 47, Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I came, I, sorry, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, this passage is long and so layered. I have pages and pages of notes and related passages we're not going to get to today, so I'd encourage you to keep studying this. I'm sure lots of stuff's coming to your mind. Uh, throughout the sermon as well. Study this with your friends, your family, roommates, community group this week. We're not going to get a chance to do all this uh, here this morning. But what Jesus here says is that he is sent from God the Father as a Savior. If you want to know who Jesus is, he says, my mission is to be a Savior. Not to just be a rabbi or a a miracle worker, not even a judge, even though all those things are partly true and good and just. Jesus says, I was sent into the world to save the world. You know, Philippians 2, there's this great like song, uh, maybe early church creed, that describes what Jesus did. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he lessened himself. He condescended himself. He emptied himself and became a lowly human. And not just any human. He didn't come as an earthly king or even as an earthly judge, but he came as a servant. Jesus came as a savior. And as a savior, or sorry, and as a human, his main mission wasn't just to do all these signs and wonders, which he did and and pointed ahead to something greater. It wasn't just his teachings that set up what his ultimate mission was, but he came as a savior. Our default mode is to be against God, to be the the gods of our own lives, to be independent, to not want to serve God and believe in him and follow him. Yet God the Father loved us too much to let that happen. His plan was always to send his son as a savior. He loved us too much to let us just wander towards our own destruction. And so he sends his son to rescue humanity. John later writes a, a letter Very similar language, the same author. In 1 John, he writes, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. This is God's plan. From the very beginning, from just moments into humanity's rebellion against God, he prophesied, he said, this is what will happen. Even though humanity's rebelled against me and the curse now rules and reigns all over, it will not always be so. There'll be a seed from the woman, an offspring from the woman that will one day crush the head of the serpent, of our enemy, Satan, and sin and death. And that is Jesus, the ultimate offspring of the woman that would crush our enemies and also be bitten and bruised by the snake and and, and die himself, but not a fatal blow or a partially fatal blow, but he would come back victorious as Lord and Savior. Here in 1 John 2, we see a great contrast, right? 
In our passage today, we see people seeing what Jesus did, hearing what he said, and saying, wow, he has to be. He has to be God. Yet, for fear of man and for wanting glory from other men, they choose not to confess it. They keep it in their minds. They don't act on it. They don't submit and believe. In contrast to that, this is what John says, right? Here here he says, uh, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, and whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in them. So in contrast to these religious rulers that in theory or in their heads believe that Jesus really is God, yet choose not to act on that, kind of reminds me of, you know, Satan and his demons who, who know the reality of who Jesus Christ is, who know what he's done, but are not saved because they have not confessed that Jesus is their Lord. They have not submitted and repented and believed. So this finally brings us full circle to the end, or to the beginning, where we started. The mission of Christ has always been the salvation of the world. The mission of Christ was always to be the Savior of humanity. Since the very beginning, God gave his son a command that he would bring eternal life. And that was going to come through Jesus' death and resurrection. But for Jesus to die, for God's plan of salvation and redemption and rescue to happen, Jesus had to be rejected. As Isaiah 53 prophesied, as the plan had to play out, Jesus had to be rejected. Men's eyes had to be blinded. Men's hearts had to be stoned so that Jesus would be rejected, so that he would be executed, so that he would be put on a cross. So here John is helping us see, here in this ancient prophecy of Isaiah, that Jesus' death for our sins was always the plan. Do you notice how he described it? Verse 41, we kind of skimmed over it. Isaiah said these things. Isaiah said this prophecy about God hardening hearts and, and closing eyes. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke about him. So that prophecy is ultimately about the gospel, ultimately about God hardening hearts and closing eyes so that the rescue of all humanity could happen. And even in God's love and patience and kindness, even the people that denied Jesus, even the people that rejected Jesus, even the people that crucified Jesus still had the opportunity to repent and to believe and to see that he really was who he said he was. That is the way that Jesus would bring salvation, by being rejected, by, P, by, by rulers, Jewish rulers, Roman rulers, seeing who Jesus was, but choosing to have their eyes stay blind and their hearts stay as stone. And God would use that for his glory, for our joy, for the salvation of the world. If you think about it, the, the opposite of this tough part of our passage today would be that God picks people that he knows will ultimately pick him. Common teaching, very easy one to want to believe, right? So when you read this prophecy in Isaiah, we might think, well, God looked into the future using his foreknowledge and, and, his, and his power, and he said, oh, that person will choose me, and so I'm going to make him believe. That person would re- reject me, and so his eyes can stay hidden. 
But ultimately, that is uh, earning our salvation. Ultimately, that is us choosing God and turning his head. Brother, the gospel is, is better news. We were all blind. We all had hearts of stone. We we're all spiritually dead, all of us. And God unjustly, unfairly broke the rules. And he took off the veil that was in front of your eyes, even though you didn't want him to take it away. He removed your heart of stone and gave you a new heart. He put his spirit inside of you. He gave you new desires. And if that's you here today, if you are a Christian, praise God that he did that apart from your rebellious heart, apart from your desire to be your own God. And if you're not a Christian here today, that's what he offers you today. If, if any of this sparks curiosity and a desire, you see who Jesus is and you're drawn towards that, that's him working in your life. That's the, 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 the spark of a flame that he wants to grow and explode in your life. So know that he offers his salvation to you. He says, Confess with your mouth that I am Lord. Believe in me, not in yourself, and you will be saved. Let's pray. God, we thank you for hard passages that, that uh, we cannot skip over, we cannot overlook, that we are, are confronted with the, with the reality that apart from you, we don't want anything to do with you. As C.S. Lewis famously said, the um, people in hell want to be there, would rather rule and party in our own torment and destruction, then submit to you and to be united to you. And so God, we, we see this play out in our passage here today. We thank you that you overcame our spiritual deadness and our rebellion against you because of your love for us, not because we would have picked you or not because we are better people than those in our story here today, but just because of your love for us. And we need your help Give us more faith, God. Faith for the first time or faith to continue. As, as Tim Keller famously describes the gospel, both at the same time, we are more uh, evil and sinful and broken and, and hopeless than we ever dared acknowledge. And at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever could dare uh, hope for. But both are true. We, we need both of those parts of the gospel. So help us to believe, strengthen our faith, give us more trust in you and when we fail when we don't confess you in front of others because of fear when we see and know who you are but don't respond to that because we know how much it costs how much of a sacrifice it'll take we pray that you would change our hearts we need your help again and again to give us hearts of flesh and eyes that can see to behold your glory and to be moved by it to be transformed by it to respond to it so help us in all this we thank you for your deep love that will never change that is seen in Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen.